Welcome to class number 40, the last class of the spring 2010 semester. As you can see, the last session is rather short, since we had to do course evaluations at the end. We did, however, get time to talk about the Grey Havens and the end of the book. Whenever I come to the end of a class like this, I always feel like, you know, I should write this, yeah, this, 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 this wonderfully honed rhetorical performance at the end with which, like, everything comes together and... You know, and then I bow and everything, and I just, I, I'm, I suck at that. Like, I'm so bad at that. So I promise when we get to the end just to, like, trail off lamely and slink out of the room. That's, that's, that's what will happen, I promise. So anyway, um, a couple, I, I, I want to talk about the ending, but uh, two things I want to touch on first. Uh, I, first, this, this was a very passing thing. Um, page 953. Aemir and Gimli's last exchange on the subject of fair ladies. The day Aemir comes back, and the elven folks, you know, the, the Rivendell Lothlorien contingent has arrived. Before he goes to his rest, he sent for Gimli the dwarf, and he said to him, Gimli, glowing son, have you your axe ready? Nay, lord, said Gimli, but I can speedily fetch it if there be need. You shall judge, said Aemir. For there are certain rash words concerning the lady in the golden wood that lies still between us, and now I have seen her with my eyes. Well, Lord, said Gimli, and what say you now? Alas, said Aemir, I will not say that she is the fairest lady that lives. Then I must go for my axe, said Gimli. <laughs> but first I will plead this excuse, said Aemir. Had I seen her in other company, I would have said all that you could wish. But now I will put Queen Arwen Evenstar first, and I am ready to do battle on my own part with any who deny me. Shall I call for my sword? And nay, you are excused for my part, Lord. You have chose the evening, but my love is given to the morning, and my heart forebodes that it will soon pass away forever. Now, seriously, Aemir? <laughs> I, so... You're volunteering to be the queen's champion to defend her as the most beautiful woman. Really? This, this is where we're going, Amir? I mean, I, I, I get it. I, I know that in, this is, a, uh, this is a, a, a joke richly funny for some of the class and, and less so for the rest. Uh, I'm, of course, making Arthurian literature references. Uh, for those who studied Arthurian li literature with me uh, in the fall, this is um, sort of particularly funny. Amir is explicitly in the Lancelot position here. Um, and it sounds like, I mean, there's, there is this moment where we see at least the potential or the opportunity for a Lancelot-Guinevere situation to arise, not casting any aspersion either on Arwen or Aemir's character by saying this. But when he, when he, you know, so you've got, you know, the, one of the greatest, yeah, one of the greatest knights of the, you know, the, the, one of the greatest vassals of the king and, and his sworn brother and the, and it's got all of the trappings. It's, it's a very, very similar parallel situation, but, but we're done. This is it. It's over now. What? What? Fan fiction time? No, 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 no. No, please no. But no. But no. Seriously, though, in the appendices, we get the ending. We get the. We know what happens. Um, Amir is going to 
get married to Prince Imrahil's daughter, by the way. Um, and they're going to... feel about this conversation? <laughs> fine. Everybody's fine. See, that's the thing. There's no problem here. And actually, I, I, I kind of think that's sort of one of... I feel like this is a kind of a gentle joke on Tolkien's part. I can't help... It's not that he's... Not that he is cracking a joke here. I mean, the, the point about Gimli and Galadriel is certainly not comedic. And, um, and the point even that Eomir is making about Arwen is not. And the whole morning and evening thing is, his, you know, in the context of the passing of the time of the elves and the coming of the, of, of, of the age of men. Arwen, of course, is positioned very interestingly. She is the even star of her people. She is the, uh, she is the last glory, though at the moment of the fading and from Middle-earth, vanishing of the elves, but yet she is going to be the dawn of the age of men. She's going to be the first, you know, she's going to be the queen of the new, you know, the first queen of the new Gondor uh, and the, the larger realm that shall be. So she is, in this way, at the turning point, and her shift from immortality to mortality is the moment in some way. I mean, that's a, as much as Aragorn's coronation, that is the moment when, when, when the age of, 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 of humans begins in Middle-earth. Um, so I'm not trying to say that this is like, that he's just doing this whole scene for comic effect, but there is an inside joke here, and I, I cannot imagine, you know, it, knowing many of the books that he, that he read, I cannot imagine that Tolkien was not thinking of, the, of this in this moment, that... that the Arthurian court was nowhere in his mind at this moment. Um, but what we see here is the Arthurian dynamic clean, um, actually untainted with treason or illicit desire, um, illicit sexual desire, I mean. Um, there always was something, and this is something... Um, you know, that I think is very close uh, to Sir Thomas Mowry's heart at the end of Le Morte d'Arthur, we have a situation, you know, he has a situation with Lancelot and Guinevere at the end where on the one hand, their love is the greatest love ever and he doesn't just, he won't just say, oh, it was horrible, it was awful, um, it, everything was the fault of Lancelot and Guinevere. But at the same time, it does cause the downfall of the round table and bring about the destruction of the Arthurian world. It is tainted, and they repent of it. Both of them end up becoming hermits and nuns and repenting um, of, of the sin that was their love uh, at the end of their lives. So Mallory is aware of both of these things. And he won't let the love go, despite the fact that he recognizes its culpability and the need for repentance. And, and, and so... Tolkien kind of gives us a little tiny glimpse of Lancelot purified here. There is no taint. Remember, up upon the land of Lorien, there is no stain. There is no stain on the relationship between Aemir and Eowyn or Aemir and Aragorn. Um, we have just sort of this, this brief glimpse of the good parts of that love, that reverence, that admiration, which was always you know, for many and for hundreds of years, a good and attractive thing about the Arthurian world and about Mallory's, uh, Mallory's writing about the Mort d'Arthur, but untainted, untroubled. 
Um, and it's just this one little, I mean, there's almost no excuse for this little passage. Um, I mean, it's cute, but we don't, he goes pretty far out of his way to give us this little exchange. Of course, he's closing the loop that he opened up before. But even before we, you know, I, I mentioned this, the whole Gimli wanting to do battle to defend the reputation of Galadriel's beauty, that's not necessary. You don't have to go there, but he does. He sort of, he, so he takes that thing, but it's, as I say, kind of uh, clean. And I think that that's uh, it's a really fun moment. Um, one other even more fun moment. Um, this is uh, actually something I just noticed reading through The Return of the King this past time. I'd never noticed this before. Um, which just shows you, keep rereading it, because you keep noticing stuff uh, every time. Sam's box that Galadriel gives him with the dust from her garden in it, right? Um, it's, she gives it to him to bless his garden, right? She says, I won't give you any help along the way. It will protect you from no peril. But if you should return, then no garden in Middle-earth will bloom like your garden, right? So this is going to be, this take-home blessing for Sam's garden after the fact. Um, But when Sam gets back to the Shire, what does he realize? He has a moment of realization about this, about the use of the gift. What does Sam think about it? He said that it would be selfish to use it for just himself. Yes, yes, exactly. But I'm sure the lady would not like me to keep it all for my own garden, now so many folk have suffered. Right, there are trees cut down all over. So he goes on his, his forestry work, right? Got little, not quite Johnny Appleseed, but anyway, there's, there's Sam with his little grains of dust going around everywhere where particularly beautiful or beloved trees were cut down in the Shire. And when Goadriel comes through the Shire, she looks around and says, I see that you have used my gift well, and now the Shire shall be more blessed than ever. Um, the, the bit that I noticed for the first time this past time reading it was remembering back to his temptation um, in Sam's little ring monologue. When he comes out, you know, he imagines turning Gorgoroth into a garden. Um, the one small garden of a free gardener was all his need and due, not a garden swollen to a realm, his own hands to use, not the hands of others to command. Now, of course, when he gets home, he takes his box and he does use his own hands. He goes around busily. But, of course, what does he end up with? He hasn't used the box to bless his own garden, as Goadriel told him to. What, is, what instead does he do? Yeah, he gets a whole garden swollen to a realm, right? The, 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 the entire shire is now Sam's garden, not... By ownership, not by dominion, he's not commanding anybody else's hands, he's not claiming it, he's not trying to rule it, but by his own sacrifice, by his own gift, by taking that gift and sharing it with the entire realm, he makes the whole shire into his garden. Um, So ironically, uh, and rather beautifully, he does end up with a garden swollen to a realm. And that's really neat. Now, of course, Sam also, and the, the party tree has been cut down. Right, the huge, beautiful tree that Bilbo stood under when giving his final speech at the the long expected party in the beginning. Um, 
What does Sam? What what happens there, Tony? Yeah, he plants. The, there's one nut in the box, right? And he plants it, and a mallorn tree grows. The only mallorn tree west of the mountains, right? Um, and people come from miles around. You know, people come long journeys to come and see it um, after it grows. There's a kind of a link. There's a kind of a similarity, I think, between the party tree, Sam's new party tree, um, and the white tree, the sign that Aragorn finds to bless his realm. We talked about that last time, remember, as sort of this other link in some ways, like I was talking about Arwen just a few minutes ago. It's the link between the past and the, and the future, and that's sort of Aragorn's primary job. He is to be uh, you know, the, the, the leader and the steward of the new world that is, but to keep alive the memory of things from the past. Sam does the same thing, right? Sam is like the little Aragorn of the Shire. Um, he, too, is going to be the leader of the Shire. He's going to be mayor for, I think he gets seven terms as, seven seven-year terms as mayor. He's mayor for like 50 years um, while he's having his 14 children. Um, and he is, so, so he is, He's, he's the leader of the Shire, but he also is the bridge to the past as well, keeping alive the memory of things that were. We have this Malorn tree growing in the middle of the Shire now. Um, we talked at the very beginning in the Fellowship of the Ring, this tiny little world, this sheltered world, this secluded world, sheltered and secluded in some bad ways, as we talked about at the time, with some negative consequences for Shire culture. Uh, and... That little world and the, the big world was starting to intrude in it. And Frodo, remember his fear of, oh my goodness, the, the great big dark lord is looking for us and he might come. And of course, then the Black Riders, in fact, do invade the Shire. So you've got, you've got the outside world, the big world breaking in on the little world. Well, now we have a piece of that big world, of that great and epic world, literally planted in the middle of the Shire, right? In the Malorn tree that grows there. Um, so that nobody can forget the link. Nobody can, with the big, with the Mauren tree growing there, you can't forget about the elven lands that are outside. You can, remember the conversation that, that Sam and Ted Sandyman had back in the Fellowship of the Ring in the bar when they were debating about dragons and elves and Ted Sandyman was very skeptical about the whole thing, right? Not sure he believes any of it. Well, you know, you can th- think of the party tree. This is Sam's ultimate refutation of Ted Sandyman, right? We can't have this argument anymore. Look, there's a a Malorn tree right over there, right? You can no longer, they can't any longer live in ignorance of the outside world. And that's Sam's job, right? As Frodo deputizes him at the end, the last pages are for you, right? You will read people's stories out of the red book and keep alive the memory of things that have been. Um, this is Sam's job as much as it's Aragorn's job. Um, and so we can see there's a pretty close parallel there. What do you think of the ending, though? What do you think of the ending of the book? Is it, does it have a happy ending? Duncan? Uh, actually, my post is on um, and especially like just the last couple words, uh, where Sam... I'm back, yeah. Um, and at first I was it's like, wow, that's a really relaxed way to end a 
the Lord. Right? And then I thought that it's really it's, it's so powerful because it, it means so many things. It, it's actually the end of his, his journey because at the very beginning of the adventure, he connects himself with Frodo. And until Frodo leaves, he's not really done his journey. He's not really back to the Shire or back to his family the way he should have been. Yeah, as he says, he still feels torn in two. Even at the end where everything seems to be over and everything is is sort of at an end, he still feels torn in two because he's still divided between Frodo and, and his family. And the Shire, not just his family, but the local events of the Shire. Frodo is not a part of it, right? Not a part of the Shire events. People don't really respect Frodo. It bothers Sam that people don't give Frodo the respect that Sam believes he, he deserves, right? Um, yeah, this is the end for Sam. Now, there is, he mentions in the appendices that there is uh, a story which says that in the end, Sam does take ship at the end of his life. When he gets very old, he too goes to the havens and goes across the sea because he too was a ring bearer, if only for like, you know, a few hours. But he, was too, he too was a ring bearer and so he leaves. Um, but that's at the very end of his life. Um, many, many, many years later on. For now... This is his life. This is where he is supposed to be. He is supposed to be whole, Frodo says. Frodo himself is not whole. Can't be whole. Doesn't find healing. Can't find healing for his hurts. He keeps getting sick on the anniversaries of his various wounds. The old weathertop wound. The Shewab sting. That one keeps coming back. Gollum bite, yeah, I mean, he's got, he's got some ugly scars, Frodo has. And they don't go away. So Sam has a happy ending. He's meant to be well and whole, and he is. How about Frodo? What about Frodo's end? Santo? Um, it sounds like, uh, like Frodo's end is more of an even keel. He's not happy, it's not sad, he just moves on. He is accepting of things. Yeah, he, he, he moves on. Um, he can't rest in the Shire. Uh, he says, I, I, I wanted to save the Shire, and it, it has been saved, but not for me. Um, he talked this way, way back in the Fellowship of the Ring, when he thought he was fleeing the Shire forever. That he felt to be a... a an act of self-sacrifice, right? Some people must, uh, in order for something to be saved, some people must give them up, lose them, that other people might have them, he says. And this, again, he thinks, I'm running away from the Shire never to return because the enemy is going to chase me probably for the rest of my life, so I'm going to live my life on the run and whatever, um, but at least they'll stop messing with the Shire, so the Shire will be okay. That's how he imagines his sacrifice at first, but it turns out that his actual sacrifice is both less and more than that. It's less than that in that he does come back. You know, it's not this permanent exile that he suspects it's going to be. Uh, within, you know, in, 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 in what, a year? Doesn't, it's not actually that long, that much time. In, in a year, he's back and could live, theoretically, the rest of his life happily in peace in the Shire. So it's not quite as bad as he thought, but then, of course, it's actually much worse. It's a far different kind of sacrifice. 
that is asked of him. He loses the ability to rest in the China. He can't find peace there anymore. It has no peace for him. He is too deeply wounded, and he can't be healed in Middle-earth. There's a real loss here. Some people must give them up, lose them, so that other people could have them. There's another character. This happens in the Silmarillion. Who does the same thing? Sacrifices Middle-earth, gives it up so that it might be saved. Yes. Erendil. Yeah. He makes a very similar speech when he jumps off the boat uh, on the shores of Valinor, knowing I'm probably going to be killed for this because it's death to come unbidden to the undying lands, but I'm going to do it so that I can deliver my message and ask the Valar for help, and then I probably won't get to go back. And he doesn't go back. He never returns he never sets foot on Middle-earth again. He flies over it, but, he doesn't, but he, doesn't, he doesn't set foot on it again. He can never live there again. He gives it up um, so that it can be saved. Frodo, Frodo gives it up too, and in a different way. He does, he's not forced to leave. He doesn't die. But his ability to remain here is gone. He goes... Where does he go in the end? He takes ship from the Havens to return to Elvenholm, Polarisea, that island off the shore uh, where the Teleri originally lived. And this is where the elves who returned from Middle-earth go. This is like, that's the other end of the destination, uh, you know, of the, the little commuter trip from the Grey Havens. Um, that's where they're going to go. So what does this mean for him? For Frodo? What's going to happen to Frodo? He's going to die. Not instantly, presumably. Um, he's going to find healing, but he's going to die. Um, mortals can't take it. Remember, he's not, going, he's not going to the afterlife. He's not going to heaven. I mean, I'm not saying I think Frodo isn't going to heaven. I just mean he's not when he sails off in the ship on his way to... Let me come in again. The destination of the ship is not heaven. Is that better? Okay. Um, the destination of the ship is not heaven. It's elven help. Um, he's going to find healing there. He will finally be healed. And then he will die. Um, remember what happened to Baron and Luthien after they came back. I mean, there are lots of things that happened to Baron and Luthien after they returned, right? And Luthien is wearing the Silmaril, and it was too much bliss for mortal lands, too much glory. And it, they, it died. they died sooner than they would have, sort of before their time. They were, like, burned out. That's what happens to mortals when they go to the undying lands. The Numenorians wanted to go there to get immortality. They believe that this was the land of immortality and those who live there get immortal and so they wanted to go there to seize immortal life. But that's not at all how it works. You can't, of course, as we see, that didn't turn out so well, but even had they been allowed to go and live there, it wouldn't have granted them immortality. It would have shortened their lives. It would have burned them out quicker. Now, as I've said before, great way to go. Wouldn't mind. But that's still 
it's not in any way uh, an end around, around mortality. The real question is, how long did Bilbo last? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, it is easy to imagine Bilbo getting off the ship and being like, Andy, we're here. <laughs> but it would have been a good death. It would, I, he was really old. You know? I mean, really old at that point. And I don't know. But I'm assuming I'm, you know, I'm going to give Bilbo the benefit of the doubt. Imagine him getting like a little bit of bliss and healing uh, and then dying. Yes, first I wanted the story. Well, I don't know. His stories are pretty long. But anyways, <laughs> go ahead. Um... What about Gandalf? I've always wondered this. Because Gandalf's a Meyer. So yeah. Does he actually die or does he just lose his current physical form and then go back up and get new orders from Manway or Lutar or whoever the heck he is? Yeah, uh, Gandalf w- wouldn't presumably die. He would, uh, he would return. Remember, he said after his return that he was sent back for a little while. Yeah. Right? So he's, he was, he's going, one way or another, he was going back. Yeah. Right? So yeah, for him, going back to Valinor is returning home, right? And presumably, I don't know if he's going to go, you know, hang out with Nienna more or what. I mean, that's what we saw him doing way back. In- I got a story for you. <laughs> exactly, right. This will be age where he has to come back and do it all over again. Yeah, I mean, is he going to get another town? I don't know. I don't know. We have no idea about that, of course. But he, he, he is native there um, and would be returning. Um, and the elves... Live in Elvenholm. I mean, Galadriel and Elrond. I mean, they're going to be. They're all going to be hanging out there. Um, again, in, in the appendices, Gimli and Legolas go too. Legolas finally, after after Aragorn dies, which is a long. Like a, he reigns for like a hundred years. He dies at the age of two hundred and something. And he, remember, he's of pure Numenorean blood. Um, and after Aragorn's death, Legolas finally decides he and Gimli now are the only two members of the fellowship still alive in Middle-earth. And so he decides, okay, that's it, I'm going. And he takes Gimli with him, the only dwarf on record who was allowed to sail across. And it is rumored, says Tolkien in the appendices, uh, that he went, well, first of all, no dwarf had wanted to sail with the elves, and he went because he really wanted to see Goadriel again before he died. And... It's even cuter than that. It is rumored that he was permitted because Goadriel put in a special request to allow him to come over. Uh, how cute is that? Uh, uh, what happens to Saruman? Because oh, yeah. he, was, he was a Maiar, but then he just kind of died. Does he go back and then maybe they try to fix him? And... Yeah. The, um, I didn't read this last time, uh, and I felt irresponsible, so I shan't feel irresponsible twice. To to the dismay of those that stood by, about the body of Saruman, a gray mist gathered, and rising slowly to a great height like smoke from a fire, as a pale shrouded figure it loomed over the hill. For a moment it wavered, looking to the west, but out of the west came a cold wind, and it bent away, and with a sigh dissolved into nothing. Yeah. Now, does this mean the utter annihilation of his soul? Maybe. I don't know. But it certainly, he appeals to the West, and the West plainly rejects him. Um, He has chosen. Remember, years of death were revealed in him. He made his choice a long time ago. Um, And his turning to the West does not look like repentance. Um, All the way through, just, you know, 10 seconds before, he was not repenting of any of his 
choices or any of his actions. Um, and the West will not take him back. Um, so I mean, does, he, does he get annihilated? Does he end up uh, you know, in the void with, you know, with, with Melkor? I, 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 I don't know. I mean, does his spirit end up fading into a, you know, this, this uh, you know, very weak spirit that's wandering the world uh, in misery? I don't even know. I don't even know. Um, but, he, but the thing that we are shown there is that he sort of makes this kind of silent appeal to the West, and the West answers pretty clearly, um, uh, and he's not taken back. So he's not going back to Valinor. It seems reasonably clear there. But anyway, I have to go in like 60 seconds at most. Um, I know. Sam's, ret- Sam's, here's the moment. Are you prepared for the lameness? <laughs> the very end of the book, of course, is Sam's return. So we get two movements at the end of the story. One towards Valinor and one back home towards Bag End. So we have two things basically being embraced or affirmed. One is the departure from the world, um, moving on from the world to a higher place, to a greater place. And the other is the affirmation of the world uh, in Sam's hearth, literally his hearth and home. I mean, the image that he paints is uh, like as domestic as it is possible to be, right? The fire is lit, and he is expected, and Rose draws him in and puts him in his chair next to the fire and sets Eleanor on his lap. Right? And he sighs and says, well, I'm back. The only thing he doesn't have is a pipe. If he had a pipe, the picture would have been complete. Right? I mean, it's, it is this, 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 this wonderful affirmation of... Well, worldly is such a complicated word and, uh, uh, and not quite right. Um, but we don't have, in the end, a simple movement towards, hey, let's leave these mundane things behind. Um, and you know everything. All of the, you know the, all of the heroic f- figures ascend into this sort of higher realm of being in the West. Many of them do, and the great f- figures from you know the leftovers, the final leftovers from the first age, you know, are going away, and the elves are passing. But we also have this affirmation of the life of Middle Earth as well. And Sam, and also Mary and Pippin, and their happiness and, you know, singing their songs together as they leave um, is sort of another face of that as well. Um, So I think it is very typical of Tolkien to end in the way that he does with sort of looking in both directions like that. He does that all the time, Um, not just choosing between two alternatives like that, Um, not just saying, hey, reject the world and think of the things that are higher um, or just saying, hey, it's all about the hearth and home and this is the ultimate thing. He does both at the end and you know, affirms both in the destinations of the fellowship uh, at the very end of the story. That's it. And that, my friends, is the end of the Washington College Tolkien class, spring 2010 edition. Thanks very much to everyone who has followed along through the whole semester. This has been a lot of fun to do, and I hope you've enjoyed it. Some of you have asked me when or if I plan to record any of my future Washington College classes. The answer is that I don't really know for sure. 
I am definitely not going to record a class in the fall semester, but I'm not yet sure about the spring. That leads me, however, to another question I've gotten several times. What happens now that the semester is over? Well, in general, the end of the spring semester means the beginning of the glorious summer break, in which I will be able to dedicate myself to this podcast full-time. My first priority this summer is to continue and complete my Hobbit lecture series, where all of this started. I plan to have that finished by, at the latest, June 30th, the anniversary of the relaunch of this podcast. I also plan to develop a regular routine of interactive sessions, Skype call-in sessions, Q&A sessions dedicated to answering questions I've received from listeners, and the like. I also hope to record several more of my Tolkien chats with Tolkien scholars, students, and friends. So the class may be over, but there's a lot more material on the way. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.